You are listening to The Book Judge, a podcast about books that you should read if you're interested in business. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. With more than 10 years of experience in business education, I've seen the amount of business theories and information explode in that time. So I'm going to help you by introducing books that anyone in business or business school should read. We'll cover the usual disciplines like strategy, marketing, innovation, but also some professional development books and even fiction. Think of this as your curated reading list that will give you a better grip on how to approach the complex issues that businesses face. Today's episode is the book Creative Construction, The DNA for Sustained Innovation by Gary Pisano. The title is a twist on Schumpeter's idea of creative destruction. That's the idea that large companies are dinosaurs weighed down by bureaucracy and stifling innovation. Gary wants us to scrutinize this concept and not blindly accept it. He points out that there are lots of large companies that continue to innovate. For example, in 1982, scientists developed a genetically modified plant cell that laid the foundations for genetically modified food. Set aside your views on GMO and think about the huge impact that that development has had on agriculture in the US, the largest market in the world. Pisano points out that this did not come from a startup, but from Monsanto, who had been around as a company for more than 80 years. It was a company that wasn't even in the seed business at the time, but had spotted and developed the innovation that would transform the company and the industry. There's also the survivor bias when we look at startups. We glamorize the startups that come from nowhere to to topple the incumbent with a great idea executed brilliantly. But we don't consider the tens of thousands of startups that don't make it. Another common bias happens in the way that people get excited about new technologies. For example, everyone is excited about the prospect of electric vehicles replacing the internal combustion engine. But the internal combustion engine is not just one physical thing. Pisano points out that this is a technological paradigm. There's a huge amount of knowledge, experience, and design behind the internal combustion engine. Auto manufacturers, governments, and investors are throwing huge amounts of money to develop electric vehicles and batteries But what gets lost in all the hype is the continued improvements to the internal combustion engine. That technology, that whole paradigm, is not completely hopeless yet and still has a lot of legs to go. Pisano calls this the last gasp. In some cases, this last gasp can go on for a surprisingly long time. And so, investors and corporate leaders need to weigh the potential rate of progress in a new, unproven technology versus the potential rate of improvement in the existing technology. They should not dismiss the incumbent outright. Pisano is careful not to come across as a blind cheerleader for large is better. He knows that many large companies get blindsided by technological or societal chains and don't react fast enough. The corporate graveyard is overflowing with the likes of Kodak, Xerox, and Nokia that only come to life in business case studies. 
But Pisano argues that there's a more complex picture at play here. For example, people think Kodak was too complacent about the impact of digital imaging on its core film business. But what actually happened was that Kodak did invest in digital imaging. But what had really changed was that the profit potential in digital imaging had shifted. Now, anyone with engineering chops could build a camera, think GoPro. The entry barriers collapsed, and with it, the profit potential for a company such as Kodak. For me, the big reveal of this book comes at the end, in the chapter on culture. Pisano had asked different management audiences to identify the characteristics of an innovative culture. There's nothing terribly surprising in their responses, which Pisano categorizes as, number one, a tolerance of failure, number two, a willingness to experiment, number three, psychological safety, number four, collaboration, and number five, flatness. There's really nothing surprising here. Almost everyone Pisano spoke to agreed these were characteristics of a great place that they would like to work for. But as we all know, implementing such cultural changes is very difficult. And Pisano looked at it from a different angle. If everyone felt these were characteristics of a great place that they would like to work for, then why is there so much resistance to cultural change when we try to introduce these characteristics? One could dismiss such resistance as the entrenched positions of people in the organization who fear their power being eroded. But Pisano shows that there's something deeper at play, that if an organization truly wanted to be innovative, then those five nice cultural traits had to be paired with five not-so-instantly-palatable traits. In Pisano's view, true innovation DNA had cultural pairs. So, number one should be a tolerance of failure, but no tolerance for incompetence. Meaning, an organization has to set extremely high standards in order to tolerate failure. Number two should be a willingness to experiment, but be highly disciplined. Meaning, you have to be brutal about the cost and learning points from your experiments and not hesitate to cut a project based on the data. Number three should be psychologically safe but brutally candid, meaning psychological safety works both ways. You have to be ready to receive negative feedback just as much as you give it to others. Only in this environment can the best ideas be scrutinized and refined. Number four should be collaborative but individually accountable meaning that there has to be an individual, not a team, not a business unit, who is accountable for the results. Collaboration is not the same as consensus, which can slow down the innovation process, and in many cases, choose the wrong option. Unintuitively, this individual accountability creates a collaborative atmosphere because that individual will seek inputs from others to get the best result. 
Number five should be flatness, but with strong leadership. This is the one area that I felt Pisano skimmed over. He really should have fleshed out what is strong leadership. He points to the usual suspects, Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, as examples of strong leaders who led flat organizations. But I felt he really needed to go deeper. Instead, he just says that strong leaders occur everywhere in the organization, and these are people who set priorities, clarify objectives, and ensure that there are enough resources to pull it off. This is the part of the podcast where I place the spotlight on one part of the book that you can use immediately in your business or in an interview or just to impress your business school friends. I call this the Did You Know section. If you're in a case interview or business case competition, there's a good chance you're going to be confronted with a strategy case regarding which product lines an organization should invest in. While implementing the innovation DNA is the most pivotal thing a leader can do for an organization, unfortunately, these business case situations really don't want to hear that sort of talk. They want clear, concrete recommendations that can take place and be implemented over several months. This book provides a lot of good pointers that you can use in a business case, or if you're reviewing whether your organization is on the right innovation track. Here, I pick out some of the more important ones. First is to clarify the trade-offs the organization is willing to make between the short-term investments in existing markets versus longer-term exploration of new opportunities. Watch out for the organizational tendency to just focus on incremental improvements to existing markets or milking that cash cow. Think how Microsoft relied on Windows and Office for too long before pivoting to the cloud. On the other hand, organizations that introduce a transformational innovation but can't scale beyond that first-generation market will also get swamped by more nimble companies that can. So if you're sitting in a case interview, pouring through the data, here are some useful metrics to think about. Number one, how fast is the core market capable of growing? Pisano looks at the difference between Google and the tire company Goodyear. Google is in a market that still has huge upside potential. So it makes sense to do routine innovations to exploit its core advertising business. Goodyear, on the other hand, is in a market that won't grow that much. So it has to explore radical innovation, sometimes in complementary areas. Number two, what are unmet customer needs? In the days when there was huge customer demand for better microprocessor performance, Intel did very well for making routine spec improvements. On the other hand, Gillette has reached the point where customers don't care if they cram ever more blades into their shaver. I'm one of those customers that just stopped buying Gillette when they went uh, three blades in a shaver. Instead, customers now want an easier purchasing experience. And that's where the likes of Dollar Shave Club or Harry's have stepped in. 
This is something to watch for. Are customers less willing now to pay for incremental improvements? Number three, how much potential is there in the existing technological paradigms? I talked about this earlier with the internal combustion engine. Suffice to say that any prediction about the future will carry huge uncertainty. So make sure you have a good risk management process in place. Number four, how to create barriers to imitation. Pisano offers several suggestions. You could build complementary technologies that are hard to imitate. Think Tesla building huge battery factories. Or you could focus on business model innovation. That's how Dell focus on its logistics and supply chain to sell essentially the same PCs as everyone else, but much faster and with greater customization. Lastly, you could focus on rapid routine innovation. That's how Apple cranks out a new iPhone every year that's always a bit better, always, in air quotes, the best iPhone ever made. End air quote. You can use these four rubrics at the next innovation or product market case study. Remember, it's all about striking that balance. Don't just dismiss the existing technologies and market strengths. One thing I found with some MBAs is that they walk away from one or two years of studying cases and think everything is just so clear and obvious. Of course, that's with the power of hindsight. Pisano pushes back on this and says things are obviously not so simple. The biggest difficulty is that it's very difficult to predict the future, even with lots of information. This is especially the case with technology and business model predictions. For one, technologies don't exist in isolation. They work in a system and depend on other factors or technologies. Again, looking at the automotive industry, if you are taking a bet on an electric vehicle manufacturer, you have to think about advances in battery technology. You have to take a view on how quickly the charging network is going to develop. How will government subsidies play out? Will oil prices continue to stay at historical lows? Pisano also has the example of Netflix. Initially, it started shipping DVDs to customers. But when high-speed broadband became much more common, only then could Netflix shift to the streaming-on-demand model we see today. There's also what Pisano calls endogenous customer preferences. That's the idea that it's very difficult to predict if customers will want a new technology if they've not seen it before. No one knew they wanted or had to have an iPhone until Steve Jobs walked on stage and unveiled that very first iPhone. No focus group is going to give you that sort of predictive insights. And finally, of course, there's the issue of competing technologies with their own rate of development. All this adds to the complexity of trying to predict technology and business models. It also means that business leaders have to be even more careful about the innovation portfolio that they're pursuing 
and the risks that they're taking on. For every book I introduce, I have this segment called the author question. One question that I could ask the author. And my question to Gary Pisano is about how his views apply to antitrust. He says in the book he's not a fan of mergers and acquisitions, but would the idea of creative construction mean antitrust regulators should have a more lenient view on large companies acquiring smaller ones for their new technologies? I'll tweet this to Gary and I'll let you know in future episodes what he says. That's all for this episode of The Book Judge. You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave a rating. It helps others discover this show. If you have comments, you can tweet me at Conrad Chua 16 Chua is spelled C-H-U-A. Or send me a DM on Instagram. I'm Chua K-H there. Again, C-H-U-A. KH. Till next time, this is your book judge, Conrad Schwab.